if you're not just thinking, you know, a couple months or a year down the line, if you're not thinking 10, 15, 20 years and being okay with results taking that long, you will get frustrated. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is our March Q&A episode. So first and foremost, hope you're having an amazing week. March has been a good month for you. March has been really good here, man, like lots of good things happening. Wanted to give you guys a quick life update, kind of what's going on in my neck of the woods, what's going on with Team Robertson, but yeah, lots of good things going on. Uh, The winter sports season is wrapping up, so Cade finished up basketball. I think I mentioned this a while back, but it was a rough, rough start to the season. I think we were 0-5 to start, and our first two games, the first one we lost 48-12, to and the second game we lost 22-4. to So needless to say, we had our work cut out for us, but around game six, I felt like things were getting better. Game four, game five, we started putting some things together. Game six, we got our first win of the year, which was huge. Because I had a couple of boys on my team that didn't win at all last year. Like, didn't win one single game. So, that was really meaningful for them. And then lost our seventh game. But then, this last weekend, won our final game. So, I mean, I wish you could have seen it. It was amazing. Like, we're going down the court. It's such a tight game. You know, everybody can feel it, right? We'd made this huge comeback. Uh, one kid just really got in the zone. He got like five baskets in a row for us, which was amazing. But literally, we're up two points. There's like 15 seconds left. They miss a shot. So I'm like, guys, slow down, slow down. And one of our guys, Joe, they pass the ball into Joe, and he's like dribbling as fast as he can. I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs, like, Joe, Joe, walk it up. He's Sprints down and literally jacks up a three with no time left. Now, luckily we were up, but I was like, Joe, what were you doing, my guy? What were you thinking? He's like, yo, I wanted to be like Steph. (laughs) So I couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, Joe, I didn't need you to be Steph. We had the lead. Just dribble the ball. So anyway, it was really rewarding. I feel like the guys made uh, huge strides in their overall development this year. And to win two out of our last three after losing our first five was a pretty big deal. So basketball is done. Soccer is never really done since Kendall's in travel now, but really seeing some huge improvements in her game. Uh, You know, the fall season, I feel like we saw improvements, but mostly just because she was there every day. I don't feel like some of the direction was there. And then over the spring, she got a new coach. That's been super helpful. So you can just see the entire level of her team getting better. But she's really put in a lot of work, too. She's been doing these Friday night clinics. You know, they kind of mix them up. Sometimes it's striking. Sometimes it's 1v1 skills. This one that she's in now is like 20 minutes of individual, 20 minutes of passing, 20 minutes of gameplay. So she's been in the facility like five days a week and just really loving it. She's never at that point where she's like, I don't want to go. I'm not excited. Like every morning, she's like, I'm excited. I can't wait to go to soccer. So... It's been really fun to watch her development, and I can't wait to see her get out there this spring because I really think she set herself up to have a strong spring season. So kids' sports are great. Coaching has been really, really fun lately. And I mean, I feel like I could talk about this every time we do a show, but you know, the winter's always a little bit slower for me. A lot of my basketball guys will 
all of my basketball guys, unless they're injured or at home for some random reason, are gone. So, you know, I got a couple rehabs that I've had. Uh, I got Jacob, my race car driver. I've got a couple gen pop people. But it's been kind of slow until this last week, and I just got a slew of collegiate and high school basketball players. So that's been really fun. We'll talk more about it later, but I'm really trying to kind of tweak and refine our assessment process or how I take my athletes through the assessment process, but loving that. And it's been really, really fun to get back in the gym and have more coaching hours. Saturday was fun. Got date night with my beautiful bride. Cade and Kendall went to their aunt and uncle's house and did a sleepover. Got to watch movies, play video games, all the stuff that kids love doing. So it was really nice. We got to chill out. We got to watch some basketball games. We went out to dinner, you know, slept in, got to go out to brunch the next day. So that was really nice to just have some time with her. And then looking forward, we have our complete coach seminar this weekend in Seattle at Luca Hasavar's gym. Really, really excited about that. I'm constantly like tweaking and refining how I try and deliver the materials in there because if you do the seminar, you also get access to the cert, which is really nice. But I'm trying to find the best way to marry the two because sure, you can go and do all the online stuff, but a lot of times people want that blend of, okay, what are you teaching there? But then combine that with what can we only get when we're live and in person? So I'm really excited because I'm gonna try some new stuff. I'm hoping it's well received. (laughs) You know, you never know until you go out there and you put it into practice, but really trying to help people connect the dots because I just feel like, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there these days that are trying to make training way more complex than it needs to be. They're trying to feed your imposter syndrome, and I feel like it's my job as a presenter, as a speaker, as an author, whatever medium I'm interacting with you, to help you feel more confident when you go out there, right? Like, I don't want you to feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. I want you to feel like, yeah, you know, I'm not where I want to be yet, but Mike's going to help me get there, or Bill's going to help me get there. So really excited for the seminar. It's going to be super long weekend, because <laughs> I fly in Thursday, basically work Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Of course, Luca can't take time off, so Luca's like, oh, Sunday afternoon before you leave, let's shoot some content. I'll get my video guy in. So (laughs) sounds like I'm going to be working basically all day Sunday, and then it's a red eye back, and then Monday afternoon, I got coaching hours. So should be interesting, but I really wanted to make sure I was back and I can finish off next week strong because the week after that, we're actually on spring break. And so that's kind of the carrot on the proverbial end of the stick for me. I just know, hey, let's work really hard the next week and a half, two weeks, lock everything in, make sure everybody's feeling good about where they're at, and then your boy's going to go take a week and sit on a beach and maybe have a couple adult beverages. So definitely looking forward to that. But like I said, lots of great things going on here. I hope you can say the same. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome Q&A episode for March. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Hawken Dynamics. Hawken Dynamics consider themselves part of the process, not the process. Force plates are in no way, shape, or form new technology, but Hawken has brought them to the 21st century. Hawken Dynamics plates are wireless, which makes them portable and easy to set up and use. You'll have the ability to performance test your athletes in a matter of seconds and give them immediate feedback on their strengths and weaknesses. 
And last but not least, their software interface is clean, intuitive, and easy on the eye, so both you and your athletes can visualize what's going on and how to improve their performance. Now, the reason I invested in Hawken Dynamics Force Plates was simple. I was tired of feelings and subjective information being the sole driver of my decision-making process. At this point in my career, I want a blend of both subjective assessments and objective-driven metrics to drive my program design. I love the idea of having dual force plates so you can see side-to-side -side differences and asymmetries, especially in athletes who are in the return-to-play process. I want to be able to collect and track data across the athletic spectrum, from our young kiddos to my elite athletes that are playing in the NBA or MLS. Another driver for me was finding ways to assess performance that aren't reliant on lifting technique. While I would never bring a kid in and test their 1RM squat or deadlift on day one, I have zero issue putting them on force plates to test their power in a vertical jump or their force output in a mid-thigh pull or iso squat. But arguably the biggest driver for me was being able to take all of this technology and making it incredibly easy to use. With options to lease or buy, Coupled with a five-year warranty, I'm confident that Hawken Dynamics Force Plates can take your performance facility to the next level. To learn more, head over to hawkendynamics.com or follow them on Instagram at hawkendynamics. Or for direct sales inquiries, feel free to reach out to Drake Berberet directly at drake at hawkendynamics.com or follow him on Instagram at strength2.speed. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in to this month's Q&A episode. We're going to start with Sean. And Sean wants to know, what are the benefits of bilateral stance and staggered stance exercises? So first off, Sean, fantastic question. Something I've been interested in probably since 2009, 2010, when Mike Boyle first came out with the pretty controversial don't bilateral squat uh, article or whatever it was, newsletter, I don't remember how he put it out there, but caused a lot of ruckus in our industry. Uh, and I appreciate Mike's forward thinking this, and it definitely drove some great conversations. Uh, and it's also something, I just wrote an article about this last year, so I'll make sure I post that in the show notes as well, because I kind of break down symmetrical stance, staggered stance, split stance, and half kneeling, what you get out of each and why you might choose one or the other. But if I were to give you like the 20,000 foot overview, when you're looking at bilateral symmetrical activities, and I think you have to be really specific here because staggered stance is technically bilateral. Both feet are in contact with the ground, but they're not symmetrical, okay? So when you're talking about bilateral symmetrical activities, it does a couple things. Number one, you've got a wider base of support. When you have a wider base of support, you are more stable, so you decrease stability demands, right? You decrease movement options. So when I start to give you a wider base and I reduce movement options, reduce complexity, there's this inverse relationship. Now I improve force generation capacity. So the, the analogy that I always give people is there's a reason when you go to a powerlifting meet, they test you in a squat or a deadlift where you're in a bilateral symmetrical stance because that's where you're strongest. They never put you in a split stance or they never test you on a single leg squat. So bilateral symmetrical activities reduce stability demand so you can increase or improve force generating capacity. Now, kind of as an adjunct to this, what you see 
when you do these activities is it tends to lock the torso and the pelvis into place. So you're not gonna have some of those relative motions that Bill would talk about in his YouTube videos and all the great work that he does. So you're gonna kinda lock everything down in an effort to produce more force. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Either, it depends on who you're training and what their needs and goals are. If I'm training a young athlete that's 110 pounds soaking wet, chances are they're gonna get some bilateral symmetrical lifts in their program because they need to get stronger. Now, contrast that with our staggered stance exercises. And you could put uh, some, some split stance activities in there as well because staggered stance is just a narrower split than a split stance exercise or activity. So the second you go from a bilateral symmetrical stance to a bilateral offset stance, you're gonna increase stability demands, and by default, you are gonna decrease force production capabilities. You're not gonna be as strong in a split stance as you would be in a symmetrical stance. Now, one of the benefits of this is that we talked about in a bilateral position, how it kind of locks your torso and pelvis into this front to back type position. Well, now when you're in a staggered or a split stance, naturally you're starting to improve your body's ability to turn and rotate. So when I start thinking about turning and rotation, baseball players, softball players, volleyball players, tennis players, people that have to bend and rotate and twist, this should probably be a part of their program, right? They probably need some force production capabilities, but you can't sacrifice their ability to bend and to twist and to rotate because that robs them of what makes them great at their sport. The other benefit of staggered stance, which generally, again, is a shorter offset or shorter split, and it's, you're not sitting as deep into the position as you would in, say, a split stance activity, is you're going to get better pelvic control. So a lot of times, if you put somebody in a symmetrical stance, they may struggle to control their pelvic position. So if they've got that pelvis that just dumps forward immediately, when you go into a staggered stance, you soften the knees, it gives them a better chance to get their hips and their pelvis underneath them. And if you work with, especially athletes, long enough, you'll know pelvic control is a big deal. And so if I wanna give them better pelvic control, I might put them in a staggered stance position to start, versus one of those deeper positions like split stance or like half kneeling where they may struggle to control their pelvis more. So just know and understand, Sean, both of these positions are incredibly valuable and they can be helpful when writing a program. You just got to know when to pick one versus the other. Okay, my friend, our next question comes from Cody. And this was actually posted in the Complete Coach Certification group. But Cody asked, how do you assess clients online? And then furthermore, once you find something that's wrong, how do you go about addressing it in their program? So again, I outline my entire assessment process start to finish in the Complete Coach Cert. So shameless plug, if you haven't bought it yet, please do yourself a favor. It's gonna help explain so many of these ideas and concepts that I talk about in these shows or in my articles, and it's just gonna take you from start to finish how I think about it. So if you haven't picked it up, definitely do that. But just so you know, there are three ways that I tend to assess the people that I work with. The first are static posture picks. And I know some people poo-poo this or look down on this, but I think this is incredibly valuable, not only for me being able to review their posture after the session, 
but for having some really good conversations after the session as well. Because when I show somebody, you know, oh, you have anterior knee pain. Well, look at this twist that you have going through your femur and your tibia. Do you think that could be driving some of that? So it just allows your clients and your athletes to see some of the things that you are. So I do static posture picks. I do table tests when I have them in person. And then I do my movement and my performance assessments. So Cody, when we're talking about online coaching, obviously I can't do table tests. I can't put you on a table and move you around and do all that stuff. So I really focus on the posture tests and the movement tests. And I always tell online clients like, look, I understand this is not ideal. The perfect situation is you would come to me, we'd spend an hour, I'd you know do all the things that I do. Obviously it would also be ideal if I could coach you in person and put my hands on you, but not ideal, but I get enough info. So when we're talking about online, static posture picks, movement and performance tests, and then from there you asked, how do I fix stuff? And I think this is such a great question and I think the evolution has really been cool to watch because, you know, look, Eric Cressy and I were talking about like correctives in like 2005 and 2006. That's when we first wrote the Neanderthal, uh, excuse me, the Neanderthal No More articles. And I think it was great because we start to get people thinking about, okay, how can we help people move better? How can we help them feel better? How can we help them train hard without breaking down? But I think the downside to this was that a lot of people thought you can just do some correctives and then continue training just as you were, right? So uh, people talk about Netflix and chill. I think kind of the mindset back then for a lot of folks was it's just correctives and chill, right? I'm going to do some hip flexor stretching. I'm going to do some glute activation. And then I'm going to go in the gym and do all the exact same exercises I always do. I'm going to do them in the exact same way I've always done them. I'm not going to change my technique. And, you know, it's probably better than nothing, but you're not going to get great results doing that. It may stave things off for a little while, but you're not going to get really long-term impactful change. So one of the things that I've talked about for years, I know I talk about it in the cert, is what I call the exercise selection matrix. So instead of just plugging in some resets or correctives or whatever you want to call it, and hoping for the best, you gotta think about how do I address somebody's movement limitations at every step of their program? So when you think about it like this, think about all the stops or all the sections of a workout, right? If we're using R7, you got R1, your release, R2, your resets, R3, readiness, R4, reactive, explosive work, R5, resistance, R6, resiliency, R7, recovery. So let's say we have somebody that comes in with an anterior pelvic orientation, or you're probably used to hearing anterior pelvic tilt. So if somebody comes in with an anterior pelvic tilt, and I assume that with some hip flexor stretching and glute activation, I'm going to fix that, I'm in for a really bad day at the office because it's not going to be enough. Now, Contrast that with, hey, somebody's got this anterior pelvic orientation. How can I address that every step of the way? Well, let's say in the R1 and the release, I'm going to make sure I roll out their quads and their hip flexors, right? Let that area relax. R2 in the resets, I'm going to do something that facilitates the abs and the hamstrings. 
I'm going to try and get that pelvis back underneath them. And by default, when I turn my abs and my hip, or excuse me, my abs and my hamstrings on, I'm going to allow the quads, hip flexors, and lower back to chill out a little bit. So I'm going to address it there. R3 and my readiness. I'm going to continue uh, to kind of play on this theme. R4, maybe we're not going to do explosive work right away, but maybe I do some backward sled dragging, right? I'm really going to focus on my arms hanging long, getting my hips tucked and underneath me, trying to control that pelvic position. When we get into R5, instead of choosing a back squat or a deadlift where I'm going to have this huge curve in my lower back and reinforce that pelvic orientation, maybe I'm going to do a heels elevated goblet squat. It allows me to shift my center of gravity back. I'm going to have them feel their whole foot, soft knees, get their hips and pelvis underneath them. Now I'm going to have them squat in a more vertical and upright fashion. You see where I'm going with this, Cody? Like if you really do this at a high level, you're not just trying to plug and play one exercise that fixes everything. It doesn't work like that. You've got to address it every step of the way. And this is constantly reinforced with me and the athletes that I work with. Again, I think I had four new basketball players start in like the last three or four days. It's been insane. Every one of them has knee stuff. So if I just gave them one or two things, like let's just say we did isometrics because isometrics are hot for tendinopathy right now. Let's say I just did isometrics. You know, I might get some acute symptom relief, but it's not going to fix everything. If I want to give these guys long-term fixes that last not just this off-season, but through the next competitive season, or that help them control their knee issues through the rest of their career, we have to do the big picture fix. It's not easy. It's time-consuming, but if you do it the right way, you can see massive changes. So, Cody, I really hope that helps you out. I hope that gives you some insight. You know, When it comes to the online stuff, don't make it harder than it is. Do whatever you can do live and in person to the best of your ability, do that online. And then if you really want to help somebody move and feel better, you got to address their movement issues at every step of the way in their program. Okay, our third question comes from Nige. And this is a pretty long one, so I'm going to read it all because I want to give you some context. And I think Nige probably has a lot of similar thoughts and questions to a lot of you listening to this. So Nige said... I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea that most people are extended. Like a lot of people, I think, I've been taught that most people are actually too kyphotic due to poor posture, and many even have a posteriorly tilted pelvis as a result of slouching instead of sitting more upright. So your teachings have really got me looking at things in a different way. I certainly agree that most athletes are more extended, but it seems to me that a lot of the people I work with, general population over 50, are more flexion biased. He says, I've also been influenced by Dr. Stuart McGill's work, so I'm sure I'm looking for a flexion bias in my clients. Although I also agree that some people have created extension problems as a result of trying to avoid any amount of flexion. So he continues, I'd love to hear more about your perspective and your experience of working with the general population. How big a percentage would you say are extension biased? How can we identify a flexion biased client, etc.? And if you've written or spoken about this before, I'd love to be directed to those resources. Thank you. Looking forward to the podcast. So, Naj, great question here. Great. Like, a tough question <laughs> because there's a lot of complexity here and I can't show you some of the things that I would like to, but I think I can give you a better understanding. So, first and foremost, I love Stuart McGill. Like, he's legitimately one of the most impactful people 
to me early on in my career formed all of my rehabilitation protocols early on when I was working in Fort Wayne and dealing with so many back pain people. And honestly, just legitimately one of the coolest human beings I've ever met. I mean, he's probably 20, 25 years my senior, somewhere in that range. And so to be able to hang out with him at conferences or seminars and he asked me to have a beer with him, like that's pretty cool. So awesome human being. But here's the caveat. What I don't want you to do is confuse McGill's work that focuses on the spine solely with more global approaches to movement and the way I would describe it with older populations where they're just fighting gravity, okay? So if you're talking about extension or flexion bias clients, we're talking about a spine, right? And and sensitivities their spine may have to movement versus this global approach to movement. All right, so make sure we're clear in that first and foremost. So something that I think will help you, and I think will help most of you listening to this, is let's get away from this idea of just extended, right? Because if somebody's shoulders are super kyphotic, nobody's going to say that person is extended, okay? What we're seeing instead, like 99% of the time, is somebody that is anterior weight bearing. Okay, so that's the first thing. Their center of gravity is pushed forward because that's how they're interacting with gravity and the earth. But where we may see differences are the ensuing compensations that come out of that. Okay, because I'll agree with you. Naj, I see these people too. And I don't care how you describe it. You can talk about it as a kyphosis, a downward pump handle. These people are losing the battle with gravity That's just how they're choosing to compensate and deal with it so they can continue to move around. So I think you're ultimately going to see two ends of this spectrum, right? The first one is probably what we would more likely describe as an extended client. So this is the person where they're anteriorly weight shifted, right? So their weight is shifted forward if you're looking at them from the side. Their pelvis dumps forward. And then they are just super upright. Like you'll see the person that like their spine just looks totally straight. So that's kind of one example. And you're going to see that a lot in an athletic population. But I think what you're describing, Nige, and I see this in athletes too, are the people that have those really big curves all the way up. And sometimes they have the the anterior tilt. They've got the big lordosis. they got the big kyphosis. But what you're describing, Nige, is a kyphosis and not necessarily a posterior tilt. What you're seeing is a swayback. And the best way to identify a swayback is if I'm looking at somebody from the side. Their ankles and their shoulders are in a straight line and they're perpendicular to the ground, but their pelvis, their entire pelvis, looks like it's tucked under and pushed forward. Okay? And this is a pretty in-game representation. So that's the person where, if you think of it as a posterior tilt, that's okay, right? It's really a sway back because they're compressing the lower posterior part of their their pelvis. That's driving them forward. So in an effort to not fall forward, now their entire thorax has come back and they've pulled their anterior thorax down. So that's where you've got that sway back on top of a big kyphosis or down pump handle up top. Okay, so what you're typically seeing are just people that are deeper into their compensation uh, patterns, if that's how you want to think about it. I'm sure Bill would have a better description, but that's 
their way of interacting with gravity and continuing to move around. Okay, so what you're typically seeing is just somebody's best strategy for interacting with gravity in the ground and continuing to move. Now, if you want to learn more about this, I would highly, highly recommend going and subscribing to my guy, Bill Hartman's YouTube channel. Uh, What I tell a lot of uh, people when they're just getting started or they're trying to figure out more about wide ISAs, narrow ISAs, compensation strategies, movement strategies, is subscribe to Bill's YouTube channel, and then from there, just search in his page for wide or narrow ISA. And a lot of times, I think I just put in ISA and just start going through all the materials he has there. Because that's going to help you better understand the different archetypes that are out there, wides versus narrows, and then why certain people end up looking a certain way. So, Nige, again, that's a really tough question to answer on a podcast. I did my best, and I hope it gave you some insights, and if nothing else, some things to start with, and then some breadcrumbs to continue following going forward. Because, again, Bill, super, super smart, love his thought process on this, and I think it'll help you connect even more of the dots with your Gen Pop clients going forward. Okay, next question comes from Shane. And Shane asked, what are you currently trying to get better at? And first off, great question. It's a fun one for me to answer. <laughs> Not that I love talking about myself, but I love showing that I'm still deep in this process myself. I'm still learning and evolving myself as a coach, trainer, human being in all those areas. But a couple big areas that I'm focused on professionally right now. Number one, the assessment process. I'm just coming full circle on this. And and Bill and myself and Eric Otter, we used to do those diagnosis fitness seminars. And I still feel like a really sound assessment process kickstarts the entire training process. So if you take that time up front and really dive in and try and figure out somebody's movement strategies, it makes a huge impact going down the line. So I talked a little bit about this up top, but I have evolved some of my testing just a little bit. I'm still doing the posture stuff. I'm still doing the table stuff, which is something I'm trying to get better at. Uh, The movement stuff and then the performance testing. So if I want to narrow that down a little bit, a couple key areas I'm focused on. The isometric mid-thigh pull test on the force plates has been something I've really been trying to lock in. Uh, I think part of it was having Paul Comfort on the podcast and just trying to think, would Paul Comfort approve of this isometric mid-thigh pull setup. (laughs) And I'll I'll link to his show because it's such a fantastic show. He really dives into the nuance and getting set up appropriately because, look, if you type in isometric mid-thigh pull setup, you get all kinds of different postures, positions, and I don't think most of them would pass the Paul Comfort test. So I'm really trying to lock that in, and I think, I think after a lot of failures, I think I found the best way to coach and cue this. So I'm really excited for the next kind of group of athletes I get in so I can test this out and see if they can do it the way I want them to. But I think the way it's described currently is very like research focused and like goiniometer focused versus coaching and performance focused and how to make it really athlete friendly. So I'm really excited about that. So I'm trying to dive in this, dive in and really dial in my isometric mid-thigh pull test setup the coaching and the cueing on the force plates, trying to be really, really like laser focused on using the same cues, 
the same examples every time so that it is repeatable. Look, I'm not doing research in the gym, but I don't want to waste an hour doing bad assessments on the first day and then come in and test a month later and there's really been no improvement for the athlete, but I just coach or cue it differently and their performance goes up, right? So I'm trying to make sure that the data that I get up front is going to be consistent with the the data I get in ensuing testing sessions. So really trying to lock that in. uh, And that's something that, honestly, I hadn't thought about until the last couple years. So trying to get consistent with my language there. Uh, I've re-added an element of gait testing into my assessment, partially because of the podcast I did with Courtney Connolly. This is something we did for a long time at IFAST. I did it... When I was using some of the Z Health methods, if you're familiar with them at all. So, gait assessment is something that's been in and out of my assessment for a long period of time, but especially with a lot of these basketball players, the twists they have going through the bones in their lower extremity, the ensuing knee issues, it's really helping me figure out okay, what positions in the gait cycle do they have access to, and what positions do they not have access to. And I think ultimately, any assessment you do has to help drive and facilitate your program design process. So this is really helping me figure out, okay, what parts of the gait cycle do they not have access to that I can help them restore? Because the one of the most important things I think we can do with our athletes is teach them to distribute forces a little bit better so that they don't have some of these issues with their knees or Achilles or their backs. And then table testing, right? And Bottom line is, if somebody's getting paid millions of dollars to play a court sport or a field sport, they're going to go see Bill. (laughs) I don't want them to see me. But for a lot of these high school and college age kids, I've just got to get more comfortable with my own table testing skills. And look, I mean, I love Bill, but I can't make him see everybody. Uh, It's like sending them to your dad. So, you know, I've got to get more comfortable with that and, and just get more confident in my own table testing skills and understanding, okay, What's a good test? Um, How are they cheating? How are they compensating? We know all table tests are dirty. That's a famous Bill Hartman quote, but just trying to get better at that myself. So the assessment process as a whole is something I'm working at. Exercise selection. I mean, this is something that I go back and forth on all the time, right? I'd like to think that just based on my experience, the amount of time I spend in the gym that I can really laser in and pick good exercises and probably better than most random people, right? Like if they went to some Joe Blow trainer at LA Fitness or whatever big box gym, I'd like to feel like I'd pick better exercises than them. But I can always get better at it, right? I can always get a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more granular. So always trying to dial in my exercise selection. And then probably the final piece is starting to synthesize and pull all this stuff together. So if you go back over the last six months, of the podcast, right? You listen to Ebony Rio's show. You listen to Courtney Conley's show. You listen to Paul Comfort's show, Alex Natera's show, Drake Burberry's show. Those are really high caliber individuals. So starting to take all these areas that I'm using, that I'm interested in, and really starting to synthesize it and put it all into kind of my own philosophy because I'm very much a collector. I like to collect things from different people and You know, we all have our own systems and philosophies, but I like to pick and choose certain things and then put it into what I consider to be my system, my philosophy, my model. So I think 
that's where things are really getting fun is I'm starting to take all these things that if you looked at them just by themselves probably would be valuable. But now when you start to bring it all together and put it into more of a true system, now it's truly impactful. And now we can really move the needle with our assessment process, with our program design process, with our coaching progress process. So Man, it's probably going to be time here. You know, I've kind of kicked the can down the curb, but at some point, whether it's reshooting the the complete coach cert and just adding more stuff to it or creating, you know, something else that's more focused more on athletic development, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's definitely going to be time here soon to start pulling more of this together, putting more of these pieces together into kind of where I'm at now as uh, an assessor as a program designer and as a coach. But, you know, the final word I'll leave you with is details. You know, the longer you do this, the more you realize the nuance, the details, that's what really separates the good from the great. So, look, I've put it out there numerous times. My goal is to be great. I want to be the best coach and program designer that I can be. So diving into those details, being comfortable, uh, going through these awkward phases, whether it's with force plates whether it's with my assessment process, just being okay with that and knowing that it's a process. So we'll talk more about that here in a minute. But yes, Shane, that's what I'm trying to get better at right now. And I hope it helps. Okay, our last question comes from Erica. And Erica wants to know, what's your best advice for a young coach, as well as for a veteran established coach? So fantastic question here, Erica. And I like how it kind of gives us this spectrum and this range of thoughts. So on the one end, you got your young coach, and I'm going to use a, a little bitty swear word here. So if you got young, young listeners in the car, turn it down. But here's the advice for a young coach. Work your ass off in the short term while playing the long game. And I think what happens is, you know, when I'll say to a young coach, hey, think about your, where you're at in 20 years, right? When you think about 20 years, that's a long time. So you assume that, hey, man, if I just come to work and show up every day in 20 years, I'm going to be great. And it doesn't work like that. You still have to work hard in the short term. If you don't, if you're complacent, you end up having the same year of experience 20 times, which is not valuable. Okay, so you got to play the long game, but you got to work hard in the short term. Now, on the flip side of this, if you don't play the long game, Right. If you're this person that's constantly thinking about where am I going to be in three months? Where am I going to be in six months? Where am I going to be in one year? You can hustle really hard for three months, six months, a year. Right. We all can. Everybody can work hard in the short term. But if you don't have that long term vision, if you're not just thinking, you know, a couple months or a year down the line, if you're not thinking 10, 15, 20 years and being okay with results taking that long, you will get frustrated. You will get burnout and you might quit. And I would hate to see that. Okay? So you have to, you need this blend of time, education, and reps to be really good. All three of those. There's no great coaches in year one, period. You have to constantly keep educating yourself. Right? You're never done. And then you got to put in the work on the gym floor. Right? You got to write the programs. You got to coach the reps. That's the only way you get really good. And I think some people will not like that answer. And 
a lot of times people don't like that answer because they don't want to think on a macro scale. They don't want to think about 10, 15, 20 years. But I think for others, myself included, this thought process really gives me some peace. Whenever I get frustrated with where I'm at, and I get frustrated too, 23 years in, I still get frustrated, right? When I'm trying to learn something new. So with the sports science stuff that I'm really trying to make a push on here personally right now, the second I start to get frustrated, I'm like, why? Why? I've only been really like pushing this since my master's. I've only been pushing this for like a year, two years. So why am I being so impatient? If I'm playing a 15 to 20 year game to get really good at this stuff, man, I got plenty of time, right? Because I know I'm putting in the work in the short term. So I know long term, it's going to pay off. It's going to come to fruition. So that's my best advice for a young coach. Work your ass off in the short term while playing the long game. Now, on the flip side of this, let's say you're an established coach. You've been doing this, I don't want to say 10 years because you're still kind of new at 10, but let's say you've been in it for a while, 15, 20, 25 years. Best advice there, because this is my my age and my demographic, you got to find ways to constantly challenge and push yourself, especially if you've had success. Then it's even more important right? If you've been in this 15, 20, 25 years and you haven't had some success, I I can't imagine you're still here, first of all, but you have to find ways to continue to evolve. And I think this is one thing that I have done, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, but this is one thing I've done well. I've constantly found ways to push myself because in 2010, I was pretty established. Like if if we're just looking at like the career highlight reel and the resume, man, um, let's see, I'd spoke at the NSCA, I'd spoke at Perform Better numerous times, I'd spoken internationally, I'd been to Canada, Australia, I mean, like, I'd been a published author, right, I'd created fitness information products, I'd coached really high-level athletes, I'd opened a gym, like, the resume looked really strong, and I probably could have just coasted, but, like, that just never worked for me, so... Even though I was established in 2010, when I started looking at myself critically, 2011, 2012, I'm like, man, okay, I'm good. How do I get better? Well, 2012, I realized, man, I really suck at speed trading and I really suck at writing conditioning programs. So best believe the next eight to 10 years, I've been locked in on those, right? Everything Lee Tapp puts out, I'm reading. Dan Pfaff, uh, Stuart McMillan, uh, man, I mean, Charlie Francis, like you name it, speed development, Derek Hansen, I'm there. Conditioning, man, I'm listening to Joel Jameson. I'm listening to Mark McLaughlin, Patrick Ward, any of these people that are putting out great conditioning information because that was the next step for me. 2021, right? Now I'm feeling pretty good about my coaching and my program design 20 years later. <laughs> I'm starting to feel good about those. 2021, I'm like, man, the next step is like tech and sports science. Like that's where this field is going. So I better lock in on this stuff now because I'll still be ahead of the curve, right? Even if you've not got any experience with this stuff, start now. You'll be ahead of the curve. So this is something I'm constantly thinking about. Like, what am I good at? What am I comfortable and confident in? And where do I need to evolve? What's the next step? And I'll leave you with this. This is a question that we used to ask every coach that worked at our gym when we'd have you know, these personal development interviews with them, right? I hated the like performance review. I hated that. Never hated calling them that performance development interviews. We'd almost always 
finish our sessions with them and we'd ask them this question. Hey man, you're doing great. Da, 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 da. What's next? What are you excited about? What are you passionate about? How are you going to continue to grow and evolve? And the cool thing about the coaches we had, they almost always had an answer. Almost always. Ty, Eric, Jay, Lance, uh, Zach Moore. I mean, I'm sure I could go on and on. Jason, Danny, if they work there, we were, you know, constantly trying to push them. Like, what are the next steps? Dave, Jesse, what's next? How are you guys going to continue to grow and evolve? So that's what I would ask you, Erica. You know, if if you've been doing this for a while, what's next? How are you going to continue to grow and evolve? But fantastic questions. And whether you're a young coach or a seasoned vet, I hope those answers give you some things to think about going forward because you're never a finished product, right? And I wish I would have known that early on. <laughs> I think we all get to this point where like, oh, if I just learn this or if I just do this or if I just work this job, the longer you do it, the more you realize, man, there's never really an end game here. It's just continuing to grow and evolve and do your best work. And that's that's a really calming way to think about it, I feel. So Erica, I hope that helps. And to all of you listening in, man, thank you so much. This was super, super fun. I love doing these shows. Uh, I try not to ramble too much, but give you a blend of like actionable items and actionable tools that you can take and use when you're done and combine those with some philosophical things because, man, look, I've been in this industry a long time. I've seen a lot of things. I've been around a lot of people, and I hope that some of the philosophical insights help kind of guide and shade you, <laughs> guide and shape you in your career going forward. So, my friend, that does it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please do me one of two small favors. Number one, if you if you like the show and you're not subscribed, please just do that right now iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now and subscribe so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. If you already subscribed, go one step further. Man, would you share this on the gram? I mean, I feel like there's some pretty solid pieces of advice in here. Again, whether it's short-term actionable stuff you can do in the gym or more philosophical things. So if you enjoyed it and you're on the gram, Please share the snippet, share whatever you can from this episode that you enjoyed. Tag me at Rob Train Systems. I will repost it because look, man, I love doing this show. Uh, I love trying to help trainers, coaches, rehab professionals such as yourselves. And I really hope that the show helps you move the needle in your own career. So as always, my friend, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.